Well, good morning, everyone. Can you guys hear me? All right, now I hear me. That's great. Well, we are uh, blessed to uh, welcome you to Sundays in July. It's always a fun time. I'm thankful to be in my natural habitat here in the gym behind this pulpit. So very glad uh, you are all uh, joining me. And uh, we'll, you know, wonderful to hear some of the, the conversation and fellowship going on uh, early on. I'd love to let that remain and linger and have more of it, but I have um, probably more material than I can cover. So we wanted to get started. So let me uh, open our time in prayer and then we will address our topic. Our Father, we do thank you for your grace to us in Christ. We come this morning, uh, though it seems in a different format, no less in praise of the risen King, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has borne our punishment, who has extinguished the wrath of God upon us, rightly upon us because of our sin, and has risen from the grave and conquered sin and death so that we might approach you, our great God and creator, and not be destroyed and not be incinerated by holiness. And it's every day that we stand on that foundation of the justifying righteousness of Christ that we are aware of our, our need for and the privilege of having uh, an advocate, uh, an intercessor there with you this very moment and every moment, uh, pleading the merits of his perfect sacrifice and ministering grace and mercy to those of us who so sorely need it. And we, we come to submit our minds to your word as we proclaim the Lord's death. We, we come to praise the, the gospel, the, the God of the gospel. And yet we, we do so submitting our minds to the truth. Uh, we recognize that praise to Christ is not divorced from a disciplined mind uh, submitting to the word of Christ as it's revealed in the scriptures. And we desire to bring our every thought into subjection to what you have declared for us in the word of God. And as we approach the topic that we come to consider this morning, we pray that you would give grace and understanding, that you would give humility and submission, and that, that you would help me to make as plain uh, how clearly you've revealed your, your mind on this matter and give us grace to submit ourselves to it and equip us to help others uh, submit their minds to what you have said in your word. And we ask for uh, hearts stirred to worship by minds full of truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of the seminar is What is Man? How Six-Day Creation and a Historical Adam are Foundational to Our Identity. And I gave it that title, What is Man?, and wanted to make this issue a focus of my contribution to Sundays in July this year because if I had to identify just what is wrong with the world today, what is wrong with the thinking of our contemporary culture, you're not getting it on the sides there? Oh, just behind me? Um... In my opinion, it boils down to a fundamentally anti-biblical doctrine of man. Of all of the issues that plague our contemporary society, I think that nearly all of them are rooted in a view of humanity that is fundamentally false. 
All of our contemporary culture's obsession with the concept of identity, uh, what one identifies as, and being true to one's authentic self, uh, ostensibly by giving vent to every one of our basest desires and impulses, all of that is the result of having absolutely no sense of who or what we are as human beings. In systematic theology, we call the the doctrine of man the study of anthropology. Who in the world is man? What is man? Is he an animal evolved from goo? Is he a creature made in the image of God and so therefore accountable to God? And not only that, but at the very foundation, what is a man? (laughs) What is a woman? Uh, We are so far down the path of God's judgment as a society that God has given us over to a reprobate mind. Not only are we sexually immoral to the point where people want to fornicate with everything they can find, uh, not only does a 50% plus divorce rate show that we have no regard for marriage, which is the picture of the gospel that God has given to all mankind to display his glory, Not only have we exalted homosexuality to the point of lighting up the White House in rainbow flags and putting a rainbow flag on every U.S. embassy around the world, but now anyone who disagrees with the homosexualism of our day is labeled as a hateful bigot who must be canceled, who must lose their job, be shunned by their families, and be banished from society. Now, on top of all of that, if you won't call Richard Rachel, if you won't refer to people by their preferred pronouns, if you won't indulge someone in their delusion that they're a woman when they're really a man, well, then you must also be canceled, shut out from polite society, excommunicated. Besides the sexual revolution and the transgender confusion, we are in the middle of the greatest racial tensions in America since before I was born. Ethnic tribalism and division has exploded in the last 10 years. Is there any basis for unity between those of differing ethnicities? Well, the answer to that question is yes, and the basis of that unity is the fact that every nation of mankind is descended from one man, the historical Adam, Acts 17, 26, which we'll see in a a few minutes. And yet the world tells itself, and it tells you, that men and women are just animals whose ethnicities are literally different races, different species that have evolved from a set of emerging hominids who themselves evolved from apes, and on and on it goes. And when you see a generation of people devastated over the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I mean just distraught over the notion that it may not be as easy for them to kill defenseless little babies in the womb, and yet at the same time, in what could only be likened to a schizophrenic stupor, be equally distraught over the deaths of 19 school children in a Texas elementary school, well, you can be sure that something is amiss in our society's understanding of who and what a human being is. That we could mourn the one and mourn the loss of the ability to do to the others what happened to those others 
is just means that we are judged. The world is awash in horrible anthropology. And so the importance of the doctrine of man in our current cultural moment is difficult to overestimate. Dr. Owen Strand writes in his book, Reenchanting Humanity, if the major issue of the 16th century was that of acceptance, how man may be forgiven by God, and the major issue of the 20th century was that of authority, whether the Bible is inerrant, then the major issue of our time is that of anthropology. Does the human person live in an ordered cosmos and have an appointed identity, or does he make his own identity in a world without God? The answers to those questions are given by God to mankind, by our Creator in the Scriptures, wherein our Creator has infallibly revealed his own mind to us. The Bible is to man what the owner's manual is to your car. Detailed instructions about what we are and how we are to function direct from the one who created and designed us. And so the function of anthropology, as Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley put it in their systematic theology, is to use the word of God as a mirror in which to see what we are so that by grace we may become what we should be. A bit later, they say, theological anthropology is the submissive study of God's word to learn about ourselves. And scripture asks that question in several different places. Job 7, 17, what is man that you, are, that you magnify him and you are concerned about him? Psalm 8, 4, what is man? Psalm 144, 3, what is man? Who am I? What am I? Why are we here? Where do I come from? What has gone wrong with the world and and with my own heart? Why am I not the way I want to be? What does it mean to be human as opposed to an animal or a plant? How can I know what is right and what is wrong? Is there an absolute objective standard for good and evil according to which I must order my life? Or is morality subjective and relative? These are the questions that a biblical anthropology answers. And these are the questions that our society is answering with vigor and force. And they are intentionally opposite to the answers that the Bible gives. And so you have to understand where you are. You are in the midst of a battle. The world is vying for your mind. It's vying for your sense of self and definition of identity. And you have to recognize that that is not some sort of neutral notion. It's not some sort of uh, neutral, well, this is just uh, you know, the, the secular, the neutral, the non-religious understanding of things. No, this is an understanding of you, of the world, that is fundamentally opposed to, hostile to, the worldview given in the scriptures. And it's, this, it's our society's lack of acceptance and embrace of the Bible's answers to those questions that has the world in the chaos that it's in. Now, at the outset of John Calvin's classic, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says famously, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. 
So our understanding of who we are is inseparable from our understanding of who God is and how we relate to him. And it has never been more important for Christians to find our identity in what God says we are. And that identity begins with the topics of my two seminars for this week and next week. In the first place, we are creatures. And so we are not ultimate We are accountable to God. We are not self-defining and self-dictating. We look to our creator to tell us who we are and how to live. That's this week. But then next week, we are also image bearers who have inherent worth and dignity as we reflect the glory of that very creator. And so as I say, we'll address the first of those this morning and the second next week. And as we begin this week with the doctrine of man's creation as the culmination of God's speaking the universe into existence in six literal 24-hour days, as well as the doctrine of historical Adam, we recognize that these are two doctrines under incessant attack in today's culture. And you might think Well, these are somewhat unrelated topics, but what I want you to understand as we work through this material, as I equip you to defend Scripture's teaching on both matters, that it's very related to what I've said so far, that any attack, any striking at the Bible's clear declaration as to our creation, as to our first parents, and as to our identity as image bearers is a direct attack on the biblical worldview. And so, of course, there are going to be people who don't believe in a young earth or a six-day creation, who are Christians, who nevertheless, uh, who also disagree with the world's conception of mankind, the world's anthropology, in ways that I would disagree with and that I'm telling you to disagree with, right? And so they're going to say, wait a second, I don't need to be a six-day creationist in order to oppose the, the uh, attacks that are coming on a biblical worldview and morality from the culture. My answer is, yes, you do. Do, right? Because any, any um, surrender, any sort of, I'll, I'll let them have this, let them strike at, at this, is in service of undermining the very foundation of your identity. So that's how the, the realities intersect. But let's, let's begin. The very first thing to say about man is that he is a creature. And uh, that means the first topic we take up is the doctrine of creation. If you want to know who man is, what man is, what man is responsible for, what has gone wrong with him, you must begin with the proper understanding of where he came from. And most fundamentally, we say that man is the direct creation of the creator God. Contrary to what the culture seems to believe about man, man is not God. Man is accountable to God. And so Beaky and Smalley say, the Bible roots our understanding of man in creation. Human life has purpose and meaning because we did not come into being by accident or by our own will, but by the will of God who created us, both us and the world in which we live. Therefore, we belong to him and exist for him. The doctrine of creation anchors our worldview in God, directs our lives to his glory, and protects us against idolatry. And let me say, God did not just create Christians. Beaky and Smalley don't mean that paragraph to refer to the believers in God. They mean to say, God created us and the world in which we live, therefore we 
all, your unbelieving neighbor, your unbelieving family member, your unbelieving coworker, we all belong to him and exist for him. And you can live in accordance with that reality or you can fight against it, but you cannot escape it. Now, questions concerning the origin of man involve us in a study of the origin of all creation. And uh, biblical, the biblical doctrine of creation is always under attack from those who would seek to undermine the biblical worldview. Because if you want to free man from his accountability to his creator and the totalizing claims of the law of God so that he can be left to sin in peace, where do you start? You start at the very root you seek to undermine the doctrine of creation. If there is no God, then man isn't a creature accountable to his creator. And of course, there's just one problem with that. There is a whole creation uh, to account for, to explain away. And it is a tall order to be looking around at the glories of a creation, breathing in the blessings of a bountiful personal creator each moment, while at the same time denying that any creator has created the creation you are living, and living in and enjoying. And so what has Satan done? He has focused his attacks on the doctrine of creation itself. And so there have been many false theories of creation. Briefly, you have polytheistic accounts of creation in which the material creation is the result of the sexual reproduction or warfare among the gods. You have pantheistic accounts, as in Hinduism, which just erase the creator-creature distinction and say that the creation is God, that God is the creation, that the universe, you know, we're just, we're just one with the universe, droplets in the ocean, like, and we are part of the, the, the universe. And so when you hear things like, oh, well, the universe has been kind to me today, when you hear people that you, you, you talk about, they say, oh, you know, the universe has smiled upon us, and they don't really mean to... Uh, insist upon any sort of pantheistic um, doctrine of creation. Nevertheless, that is, that is actually what they're doing. That's downstream. They are downstream of that worldview. And it's important for you to mock that notion as silly as much as you would mock the fact that somebody really believes that the world got here because two of the gods sexually reproduced or did, did battle millions of years ago or thousands of years ago or whatever. The universe is the creature it is not the creator. And you see stuff like that in Gnosticism as well where creation is an emanation from the being of God. There are also panentheistic accounts. So there's pantheism and then panentheism which say, which say that not that God is the creation but that he is in every aspect of creation in a way that we have a soul inhabiting our body. Well, God is the soul of creation. He's the soul of the universe, and the physical creation is like the body. That also doesn't adequately maintain the creator-creature distinction, that God is God and his creatures are not. And then the really opposite, the, so the opposite side of the same error, materialism claims that physical matter is all there is. It is eternal, and, th and there is no immaterial. There has been no creation. What we see just always was in some form. This is the fundamental axiom of atheism, Darwinism, neo-Darwinism, any sort of uh, scientific model that depends on the Big Bang. And What's the uniting factor in all of that? What, what makes materialism the opposite side of the same error of pantheism and panentheism? It is the worship of the creation 
at the expense of the worship of the creator. Pantheism in, and, and, and panentheism ultimately call for the worship of the creature by failing to distinguish God's being from the creature's being. The creation is God. Worship it. Materialism, having evacuated any place for an immaterial creator God from their worldview, in the absence of the true God, make the physical creation God. Since there's no true God really there, we'll make a God out of what is. And it's just such a testimony to the fundamentally religious nature of the heart of man. We must worship something. We are inveterate worshipers. And if you have a sin-fueled agenda to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Romans 1.18 says, we all do. If you have an a priori, shall we say unscientific commitment to rejecting the biblical creator because you don't want to be subject to his law, well, then you do exactly what Romans 1 says you do. You exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the worship of the creature. If the universe has no creator, then it becomes our God. But against all of that truth suppression, Scripture testifies with uniformity and with clarity and with authority that the one true God, the God of the Bible, has created all things by the word of his mouth in the span of six literal 24-hour days. But of course, even those ostensibly holding to a Christian worldview reject that fact. Aside from the out-and-out Darwinian evolutionists, uh, there are the theistic evolutionists who try to marry neo-Darwinism with Scripture. And then just a bit downstream from them are the old earth creationists who reject macroevolution but seek to harmonize evolution's belief in a billions of years old earth with the claims of Scripture. And in both cases, the concern always seems to be genuinely apologetic. How will Christians speak a compelling message to the world if we believe something which to them is so manifestly false and so scientifically, quote-unquote, disproven? See, ultimately, they have made, these, these dear, well-meaning brothers and sisters, have made the current scientific consensus on origins a hermeneutical grid through which we interpret Genesis 1 through 3. But we do not interpret the text of Scripture, which is infallible and unchangeable by the precepts of contemporary science, which are by definition always fallible and always changing. The, the scientific consensus once said that the earth was flat and the center of the universe. Where would we be if we contorted our interpretation of Scripture to fit with, quote, the settled science? No, we do not interpret Scripture in light of science. We interpret science and the observations we make about the phenomenal world in light of Scripture. Scripture is the norming norm which is never normed. What did the original author intend by what he wrote? What did he intend for the original audience to understand? You see, nobody has made a scientific observation of creation. Nobody was there when it happened except the God who created. And so he has given first-person eyewitness testimony to what that creation was and how it was. And he's given it to us in the scriptures. So we do not take deductions and extrapolations from the creatures several thousands of years later to then tell the creator how he created. We receive from him his word and interpret our observations in light of it 
But again, at least some of those folks who don't believe in a young earth do not believe they are letting science norm their interpretation of Scripture. They believe there's a biblical warrant for believing in an old earth and that it's unbiblical to believe in a young earth. And so we need to undertake a defense of six-day creation. We can't just uh, point to the text and say, look, it's so clear. It's just what the Bible says, even though that's true. We, 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 those who disagree with young earth creationism also appeal to what the Bible says. And so we can't just insist that our view is clear. I mean, we could, but then we just yell at each other. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. I know you are, but what am I? And that's not helpful. We have to actually defend our position from the text. So what are uh, some key biblical arguments for the truth that God has created the world in six days? Well, first, we must understand that Genesis 1 to 3 is historical narrative. A lot of objections to the literal truthfulness of the opening chapters of Genesis are grounded in the concept of genre. The claim is that Moses, or whoever these people think wrote Genesis, but of course it was really Moses, didn't even intend for his readers to read it as a record of actual history. It's a, it's a selection of poetry, and they, and they point to a poetic-like refrain as evidence, and there was evening, and there was morning, and one day, and a second day, and so on. And as we'll see with the framework hypothesis, there are beautiful parallels between the lights on day one and the shining celestial bodies on day four, the waters on day two, and the sea creatures on day five, and so on. And they say, you see, it's just poetry. You're not supposed to take poetry literally. And of course, yes, poetry uses figurative language, but even so, poetic language can still reveal literal truth. I mean, just because the Psalms say that God is enthroned upon the praises of his people, Psalm 22, 3, or because Isaiah says that believers will mount up with wings like eagles, 40, 31, it doesn't mean that we, can, we can't glean literal truth about God and about believers from those passages. So poetic language can still reveal literal truth. But beyond even that, there are very clear indicators that Genesis 1 to 3 is not Hebrew poetry, but is historical narrative. For one thing, we do not see the uh, synonymous parallelism that characterizes so much of Hebrew poetry like we see in the Psalms or in the poetic portions of the prophets. Instead, we see the plentiful use of the wayik tol or the wow consecutive, a Hebrew verb construction that moves Hebrew narrative along, just like you see in the books of the, of the kings or chronicles. Dr. Stephen Boyd at the Masters University statistically analyzed passages in the Book of Kings, which no one disputes are narrative passages, his, recounting the history of Israel and her kings, and, and he uh, analyzed those and the use of the Wayak tolls in Genesis. And, he's, and he found that the, the, the per capita use of the while consecutive verb construction is statistically higher in Genesis than in the Kings. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Those and, 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 and then, then, then constructions, the while conjunction with the imperfect verb, are the key grammatical indicator of Hebrew historical narrative, recounting historical records of events. For another thing, later on in the book of Genesis, 
we see references to the Garden of Eden right alongside references to other biblical place names that no one believes are non-historical. Some people will say that Genesis 1 to 3 or even Genesis 1 to 11 is non-historical. It's just sort of like, you know, poetic myth that means to teach us some really wonderful truth but isn't to be taken literally itself as if we were supposed to go find Gondor, right, or, or someplace. We, we refer to, you know, the relationship between Sam and Frodo like they were genuine human beings but or I suppose hobbits, actual creatures. But we don't expect that we're going to, we could go to the Shire, right? Although I've been to Hobbiton and, you know, my analogy is failing. But you know what I mean. Most everyone agrees that by Genesis 12, the author intends to be writing a factual record of history. But one chapter after that, in Genesis 13.10, you have a reference to the Garden of Yahweh right alongside the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as a reference to the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So if we're not intended to take Eden as a literal historical place because, well, it's just a mythic place, poetic, you know, not literal truth, with what level of consistency can we say that Sodom, Gomorrah, Egypt, and Zoar are real places? None. Just as those other places are historical, so also is the Garden of Yahweh. And you see plenty of other verses, uh, I've listed a few of them there, make reference to the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God that are not in Genesis 1 to 11. A third evidence for the Genesis 1 to 3 being historical narrative is the genealogies that appear throughout the later chapters of Genesis, which link the creation narrative in 1 to 3 to the rest of history. Genesis 5 treats Adam as a historical person who fathered real children, who then fathered children of their own. We go from Adam to Seth, all the way down to Noah and his sons, which brings us through the post-flood world. And then Genesis 10 and 11 include genealogies of Noah's sons, which take us all the way to Abraham in Genesis 12. And then we have the narratives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in Genesis 46, we've got the genealogy of Jacob's sons through Joseph. And so the question is, where do you draw the line? You can't say that Genesis 1 to 3 is non-historical myth while the rest is history because Genesis 5 treats Genesis 1 to 3 as history by linking Adam to Seth to Noah. We don't have Bilbo or Frodo's grandchildren with us, right? We, we recognize that that's the story, and then there's real life. This would be to say that real life is treating the story as if it was real life by saying those characters, those mythical characters, had grandchildren. So you can't draw the line at chapters, at chapters 1 to 3. You can't draw the line at between 11 and 12 either, because some will say Genesis 1 to 11 as a unit is the whole thing, because Genesis 10 and 11 link Noah and by implication, Adam, who was linked to Noah in Genesis 5, to Abraham. And so is Abraham not real? And we can go further than that. The chronicler in 1 Chronicles 1 to 3 takes the genealogy from Adam all the way to David. If we reject the historicity of Adam and the events recorded in Genesis 1 to 3, I got it here, um, we either have to doubt David's historical existence, which is just absurd, or we cast suspicion on the consistency and reliability of Scripture. The genealogy of Jesus in Luke, 1, in Luke 3 goes all the way back to Adam. And so you get the point. If later portions of Scripture depend upon and refer to previous events as if they were historical, actual historical events, 
And if those historical events didn't take place, then there is doubt cast upon the historicity and reliability of those later portions of Scripture and not just Genesis 1 to 3 or Genesis 1 to 11. Now, besides that, Jesus himself reads Genesis as historical narrative. In Mark 10, 6 to 8, Jesus quotes from the first wedding sermon in Genesis 2 and not only treats it as true history, but says that it took place from the beginning of creation, which means that the marriage of Adam and Eve did not occur thousands of, after thousands of years of evolution. Do you understand the significance of that point? If their marriage is at the beginning of creation, then it's not the case and there has been the beginning of creation with the primordial soup and the, you know, the evolving organisms from a single cell, from life, from non-life, sentience, from non-sentience, and then eventually humanity from an emerging species of hominids that were non-human that were then invested with the image of God. Oh, and then there is marriage. That would be thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. Jesus says they were married at the beginning of creation. Similarly, in Luke 11, 50 to 51, Jesus pronounces woe upon the scribes and he speaks of how the leaders of Israel shed the blood of the prophets since the foundation of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Jesus considers the murder of Abel in Genesis 4 to have happened at the foundation of the world, not thousands or even millions of years after the foundation of the world. People, Jesus was a young earth creationist. And so the fact that Genesis 1 to 3 is historical narrative is a decisive argument for six-day creation if for no other reason than that it means that we should read the text to say what it seems to be saying on its face. It's not poetic. It doesn't invite figurative non-historical interpretation. A second key argument for six-day creationism is that God created ex nihilo out of nothing. God did not create the universe with pre-existing matter. He did not bring order out of chaos. Yes, at creation, the earth was formless and void, tohu wabohu, and then God filled the earth by his creative activity. But the idea that God brought order out of chaos is an axiom of liberal theology, which attempts to accommodate naturalistic theories of evolution in which God created with pre-existing materials rather than creating out of nothing. He did not, as the theistic evolutionists argue, endow created reality with potencies which spontaneously by energies intrinsic to them then produce the various forms of life, which is just to say they didn't evolve, right? No, God made everything. Genesis 1.1 says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and the phrase, the heavens and the earth, is what we call a merism. It's a figure of speech that stands for all that exists. He's created heaven and earth and all things in between. You see that also in Psalm 146.6, Acts 14.15. There is nothing that God did not create. There is no eternal matter. There is only eternal God. Hebrews 11.3 says, What is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So God didn't take eternally existing materials or where, if they weren't eternally existing, where did they come from? The aliens put them here, right? He didn't take pre-existing materials and turn them into something else. 
He, as Romans 4.17 says, called into being that which did not exist. This is an explicit statement of creatio ex nihilo. He calls into being that which does not exist. And so if God did not create ex nihilo, but created out of pre-existing materials, what are those pre-existing materials? They are neither the creator nor the creation of the creator. Denial of creatio ex nihilo ultimately destroys the creator-creature distinction and posits that eternality is an attribute that belongs to some other substance than God alone, like the aliens, which some serious-minded people actually suggest. And then, very related to that, is the fact that God did not only create ex nihilo, but he created in verbo, that is to say, by his word. We just mentioned Hebrews 11.3. The earlier half of that verse says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. And we see that plainly in the creation narrative itself. Genesis 1 repeats over and over again, then God said, and it was so. So often you hear people say, well, look, Genesis, I agree, tells us that God created, but it doesn't tell us how God created Sure it does. He says, he, it says he spoke the world into existence. He created it by his word. An important text is Psalm 33, verses six to nine. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. There's that synonymous parallelism that marks Hebrew poetry. Word of Yahweh, breath of his mouth, heavens, all their hosts. You see how those match up? You don't see anything like that in Genesis 1. So God created by his word. And then verse 9, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And those ands there are also, in verse, Psalm 33, verse 9, those are also wayak tolls. He spoke and it was done. There is no lapse of time. The Hebrew grammar won't allow it between he spoke and it was done. The text does not allow for us to understand by that. He spoke and then millions of years passed and then finally the evolutionary processes that he employed yielded stars and fish and creeping things. No, he spoke and immediately upon his speaking it was done. That does not allow for an old earth. And then fourth, there is the Sabbath. Six-day creationism is substantiated by the existence of the Sabbath. And whatever your view of the perpetuity of the Sabbath may be, without a doubt, Exodus 20, verse 8 to 11, establishes a pattern of a six-day work week and a seventh day of rest on the basis of the fact that God created in six days and rested on the seventh day. The text of Genesis gives us a straightforward reading of a historical sequence of creation in six literal days. There is the repetition of evening and morning that reflects an ordinary cycle of day and night. It's, it's never used figuratively, right? People, they say, oh, that's just a poetic refrain, or it just was evening and then it was morning one day, right? And then it happened again the next day, like it happens every day now. The Hebrew term also for day, yom, when used with a number, like one day, Genesis 1-5, or a second day, verse 8, is never used figuratively in Scripture. It is only used to describe a 24-hour period. 
And then Moses, who wrote Genesis 1, treats Genesis 1 as the straightforward history that it is in Exodus 20 and appeals to the six days of creation as the foundation for Israel's Sabbath rest on the seventh day. In six days, Yahweh made the heavens and earth and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the, seventh, the Sabbath day and made it holy. So Exodus 20, 11, I contend, is rendered absolutely meaningless if God did not create in six literal days. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Fifth, the fact that God is said to have directly made, created, and formed man means that man did not evolve through naturalistic processes. He was created animate. There is no animate progenitor or inanimate progenitor to the modern man like evolution would demand. Man was created as the image of God. Genesis 1.26, it says, let us make man in our image. Genesis 5.1, in the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. This is how God made man. He did not create some sort of lower hominid man who evolved into the image of God or who was later invested with the image of God. Man was the image of God upon man's creation, upon his making. And in the same vein, Jesus says in Mark 10, 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. From the beginning of creation, he made them this way. Man was a part of, cre of the creation from the beginning and was not a subsequent evolutionary development. Sixth, not only is, God's, is, not only is man God's direct creation, he is his unique creation. And this uniqueness separates man from the rest of creation and thus requires that he not be understood simply as another of the animals. Scripture testifies to this uh, uniqueness of man in several ways. One, by man's being the climax of creation. He is created on day six after everything else. And only after man's creation is God's work pronounced very good. Genesis 1.31, as opposed to just good in verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25. Everything else was good. This is very good. Two, man's creation is unique in being pictured as the result of determinate counsel in chapter 1, verse 26. With everything else, it's been let there be, and there was. But with man, it is let us make. Let us make. There is a note of deliberation there, a, a note of consultation within the plurality of the Godhead, suggesting wisdom and intentional planning. Three, no other creature is said to be the image of God. Everything else is made, notice this, everything else is made after their kind. He did this after its kind, after their kind, right? But man is made in our image. John Murray makes the observation that the exemplar after which each animal was created was another creature. But the exemplar after which man is created is the eternal creator himself. And so man stands in the closest possible relation to God, distinct from the animals. Four, we also see uniqueness in that because man is God's image, to kill man is to merit capital punishment. Genesis 9, 2 to 6. God kills animals to provide Adam and Eve with a covering in 321. 
He was pleased with Abel's sacrifice of animals in Genesis 4.4. If someone kills an animal, it's not necessarily a problem. Could be, but it's not necessarily a problem. But Genesis 9.6, whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood, or by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And five, also related to that, is that no other creature is tasked with being God's vice regent and exercising dominion over all other creatures as man is. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, let them rule, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over every living thing. Psalm 8, 6, you make man to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And so again, this uniqueness separates man from the rest of creation, which would be incongruous if man were simply a more highly evolved hominid, but essentially of the same nature as the other animals. So the text simply seems to be saying that God has created man in six literal 24-hour days. The grammar testifies to it. The, the uniqueness and directness of the creation of man testify to it. The Sabbath testifies to it. We should receive it as it is written to us. But of course, not everybody agrees with that. And so there have been alternative theories of creation proposed, and we need to understand those claims and be able to address them biblically. And while we don't have time for a full-length presentation and refutation of all these views, we can summarize them and give brief evaluations. The first is what is called the gap theory which argues that there was a long gap of time that passed between Genesis 1 and Genesis or Genesis 1:1 and Genesis 1:2 in which some sort of catastrophic event made the earth become formless and void after God had created it very good the argument is that the verb hayah in verse 2 the earth was formless and void is also often translated to become rather than simply to be and so they argue translating it as the earth became formless and void gives an opportunity for a long gap of time which would then cohere well with an old earth. But there are several problems with that. First, such a construction would require verse 2 to follow in a narrative sequence from verse 1. God created the heavens and the earth and then the earth became formless and void. But in a portion of scripture, as we said earlier, that is absolutely saturated with Wayyiktol verb forms indicating historical sequence, we find no Wayyiktol in Genesis 1-2. The verse begins with a, uh, with a wow connective plus a non-verb, not a wow consecutive plus an imperfect verb. That means it's a disjunctive clause. And a disjunctive clauses do not indicate sequence. They indicate that the author is expanding upon what came just before, before moving on. Disjunctive clauses give background information on, wh on what was just said. They don't advance the narrative. So Moses is saying that God created the heavens and the earth and that creation as God created it was formless and void. It was empty. It was just the sea, no creatures yet, no land, no vegetation. So one, the disjunctive rather than the while consecutive destroys the gap theory. Second, though Hayah may at times be translated to become rather than to be, it is not legitimate to translate it as become in this context. Hayah is only translated as the dynamic state of become 
if it is in the imperfect tense. You see it in verse 3, right? Uh, And there was light can be translated, and light came to be after God commanded that there be light. There was no light, and then light became. But hayah is in the perfect tense in verse 2. And the only time hayatha means become in the perfect tense is if it's followed by a particular preposition, the lamed preposition, which is not the case here. So this means that it should be translated as the static state of was rather than the dynamic state of become. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the apostles often read from and quoted in the New Testament, testifies to this by translating haya with the static state of me in Greek rather than the dynamic state of ginemai. So if, if it really was supposed to be become, the Septuagint could have told us that by using what they use as two different words, whereas Hebrew only used one, to, to say become, but they chose the one that means was. The Vulgate shows the same distinction in Latin as well. So there is no grammatical support for translating haya as become, and therefore the gap theory fails. And of course, besides all of that, it would require there to be death years and years before the fall, um, which Genesis 131 says that all that God had made up to the sixth day was very good. And, you know, the death and destruction of his creation is not a very good thing. Sin enters the world through death, not uh, through God's direct creative agency. And so that, of course, destroys the gap theory. The day-age view basically argues that since the term day is often used in Scripture to speak of an unspecified period of time, the six days of creation are actually six ages. Passages like Psalm 90, verse 4, and 2 Peter 3, 8 say, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. But when you look at those verses in their contexts, you find that neither is teaching that we should interpret the word day to have a fluid meaning. Psalm 90 is talking about the eternality of God. 2 Peter 3.8 is talking about the patience of God. Neither gives us warrant to import that figurative sense of the term day to every or any other instance of it. And besides, as we said before, when the term yom appears with a number, one day, a second day, it is only used to describe a literal 24-hour period. Even in these verses, the point of the illustration depends on our understanding one day in the literal sense of a 24-hour period. The whole point is that we understand that what is like a single day to us is like a thousand years to the God who is outside the bounds of time, not that the last day might have been a thousand years somewhere on some alternative plane or reality. The framework hypothesis I mentioned briefly earlier, it's the idea that Genesis can't be a historical narrative because the literary literary parallelism is too poetic. It suggests that Genesis 1 is an extended metaphor to communicate theological truth rather than historical narrative to communicate literal truth. And they observe that the focus on the, the light, the day, and the night in day one corresponds with the focus on the shining luminaries in the sky on day four. And then the focus on the sky and the waters below and the waters above on day two corresponds with the sea creatures and the flying creatures on day five. And then the focus on the dry land, seas, and plants on day three corresponds with the creation of animals and man on day six. But there are several responses to this. 
First of all, as Beaky and Smalley observe, structured narrative in the Bible does not prove that a text is not a historical account. The ten plagues of Egypt in Exodus 7, 1 to 12 are presented in a very nice, structured, literary form. Should we read those as merely figurative? I'm sure there are some scholars who would say we should. But their interest is in undermining the authority of Scripture and the historicity of Scripture, not in submitting to God as obedient servants. There are six sets of uh, seven generations in the genealogy of Jesus in the opening chapter of Matthew. Should we reject the historicity of that genealogy? Should we uh, conclude that the historical narrative of Matthew's gospel is actually some sort of poetic parallelism that doesn't teach us anything literal? If we do, then what do we make of Jesus' entire life? No, the fact is, literal truth can be presented in an artistic form without calling its historicity into question. I had that up there for you. Literal truth can be presented in an artistic form without calling its historicity into question. Second, the parallels aren't as neatly parallel as the framework hypothesis uh, propose. Beaky and Smalley do a good job of demonstrating that. I wonder if you can see the words that small. But they, they say, the proposed parallel between the first three days and the next three is not exact. God set the celestial objects in the firmament of the heaven on day four, but that place is not mentioned on day one, for it was created on the second day. Day five is supposed to run parallel to day two, but the birds created on the fifth day multiply in the earth, which God made on the third day. Rather than collapsing days one and four, two and five, and three and six together into three non-chronological theological topics, it makes much more sense to read Genesis 1 as a chronological sequence of days in which each act of creation prepares for what follows it. Amen. Third, the framework hypothesis undoes the week-long structure of the narrative itself, which undergirds the institution of the Sabbath. Again, Exodus says the reason that Israel rests on the seventh day is because God created in six and rested on the seventh. But according to the framework view, God did not create in six days, then he did not rest on the seventh, which reduces Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, again, to meaninglessness. And uh, yeah, we'll move on sort running short on time as we always are. And so we are left with six literal days, which is the straightforward reading of the text. Some object that it's impossible to have light, which is created on day one without the sun, um, which is created on day four. But obviously God can create light without the sun. Surely we know that there will be light in the new creation without the sun. Uh, Revelation 21, 23 says the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb. Revelation 22, 5 speaks similarly. God's creating light without the sun shows his dependence of the, uh, shows his independence upon the celestial bodies and his all sufficiency to provide for his creation of himself. Another objection is that too many events take place on day six for it to be 24 hours. How could Adam name all the animals in that time and so on? Well, for one thing, he may have named the kinds of animals rather than every animal, individual species that we see exist on the planet today. Uh, For another, don't forget 
that God brought all the animals to Adam. He didn't have to go searching for them. And third, Adam's pre-fallen intelligence and creativity may be beyond our comprehension. He may not have had, been subject to the same limitations that we would assume he would be in a post-fall world. And finally, we can't forget that according to Genesis 7-2, Noah brought two of every kind of unclean animal and seven pairs of every clean animal onto the ark in a single day. And so, of course, there are other objections with responses to them, but for the sake of time, we move forward. Let's see what we can get through for historical Adam. So Beaky and Smalley summarize the position of those who deny the historicity of Adam. They write, some theistic evolutionists view Adam as a group of highly developed hominids to whom God gave moral and spiritual consciousness. In this view, the human race descended from a group of several thousand individuals who lived about 150,000 years ago. In this view, Genesis 2 is understood to refer not to the literal creation of Adam and Eve, but is, quote, a symbolic allegory of the entrance of the human soul into a previously soulless animal kingdom. Oh, I had, had that more. Now, of course, there are several problems with this. First, the Bible testifies to man being the singular direct creation of God rather than some sort of group of hominids or man-made, man-like animals. Genesis 2, 7 tells us that God formed a single individual from the dust of the ground. The man, singular, not a clan, not a tribe, not a people. The verse, the verse it's just the man. And the verse goes on to say that God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. That is, the man's nostrils, not the nostrils of hundreds or thousands of hominids or primates or what have you. And then the verse says the man became a living creature. He be, the man, the, the singular man, became a living creature. And then uh, in Genesis 2.18, God says that it's not good for this man to be alone. Well, alone cannot describe a clan, a tribe, or a people. And the reason it's bad for him to be alone is because he can't reproduce and fulfill the divine mandate to fill the earth. According to this view, they've already filled the earth. But, and here, Dr. Barrick makes a great point in the, uh, the Four Views book. He says, if Adam has to wait around for another human to evolve, how will he survive long enough while another similarly developed individual evolves who is his compatible opposite in gender for the human race to begin? It just doesn't fit. Other objections are raised, such as the uh, fact that the Hebrew word Adam doesn't, dis- doesn't refer to a particular individual named Adam, but to mankind generally. It describes the every man, but not any man in particular. Well, in response to that, it must be noted that, yes, sometimes Adam refers to the whole race. We speak of man or mankind, right? But there are other times where it unmistakably refers to the father of the race, the individual God created and called Adam. In Genesis 5.3, Moses says, When Adam lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now, this is not referring to the human race in general living 130 years before fathering a son. It's referring to Adam. So that objection really holds no water. 
Another is that Genesis 1 to 3 chronicles the history of Israel. Another objection, I should say, is that the Genesis 1 to 3 chronicles the history of Israel rather than all of humanity. This is Moses talking to the Israelites on the plains of Moab as they get ready to enter the promised land. And he, he's just talking about how the nation came into being, not the entire human race. But that's also a flimsy objection because the genealogies in Genesis record Adam and Eve as the parents of the entire human race and not just Israel. Cain, Abel, Seth, Noah, those are not Israelites. Israel begins with Abraham in one sense when he's called out from Ur, but then in a, in not even by name until God changes Jacob's name to Israel in Genesis 32. And besides this, Genesis 3.20 calls Eve the mother of all the living, not just all the living in the land of Palestine. And while there are other objections, time constraints demand that I move on. If you'd like to read further about the historical Adam, I refer you to Beaky and Smalley's discussion in their Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 2, uh, to Dr. William Barrick's essay, longtime professor at this Master's Seminary, uh, in the Four Views book on the historical Adam, published by Zondervan, and then to William Van Duterward, uh, his, his book called The Quest for the Historical Adam, uh, Bill Van Duterward teaches, or up until recently, just taught at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, and he's just moved to Presbyterian uh, Reformed, Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Greenville. I forget what they call that seminary, but it's in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, excellent resources, all of them. But it's necessary to emphasize that the doctrine of the historical Adam is exceptionally important for several reasons. It's important to defend, but it's important to hold. And the first of those reasons is that a historical Adam is the basis for the dignity of mankind. If we reject the hist historicity of Adam, we destroy the basis of the distinction between mankind and the animal kingdom. Man becomes an evolved animal, and that would require that some sort of existing creature be invested with the image of God rather than, as we've already established, the text says, than that God made man as his image. Man doesn't receive the image of God. You have to understand this. He is created as the image of God from the beginning of his existence. But if there were no historical Adam and man were just an evolved animal, there really would be no basis for the humane treatment of men over animals. People kill animals for food, for sport. But if you kill a man for food or for sport, you're liable to lose your own life. What accounts for the difference if Adam is not a historical person and man is just a high-functioning animal? Now, of course, people with the opposite worldview don't say, well, let's go kill people, right? Let's, let's just make, let's have men run in the, in the labyrinth and we'll pick them off like we, we shoot, you know, animals, elk on the prairie. Well, for one thing, actually, that has happened. You've heard of the Colosseum, right? Men, people have treated men uh, as animals to be killed for sport when they've had a godless worldview. Maybe we're just not quite there yet in, down, down the, the slide of the wickedness of American paganism, but we're getting there. But also, you recognize that, yes, you don't want to embrace that, but that's because you're borrowing from my worldview. Your worldview tells you that there's no real consistent stopping point where you can say, okay, now we, we have to stop before we kill people for sport. Why on your worldview? Why on your first principles? If Adam is just nothing more than uh, an evolved animal, I under, I, I'm glad that you agree we shouldn't just kill people willy-nilly, but how does your worldview comport with that? How do you justify that belief? What happens is 
They can't justify it, and you help them see you don't have a worldview that actually accounts for reality as it is. You have to borrow from my worldview in order to stop your worldview from killing everybody. Um, I lost my place. Secondly, a historical Adam is the basis for the unity of mankind. Acts 17.26 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. The fact that every human being has descended from one man, uh, Adam, is the ground for the unity of the human race. Men and women of every ethnicity are blood brothers and blood sisters, so to speak. There are not multiple races. There, are one, there is one human race. Now, of course, one might argue that there are two human races, the Adamic race and the Christic race, fallen humanity in Adam and redeemed humanity in Christ, but there is no such thing as European humanity or African humanity or American humanity or Asian humanity. Those may be ethnicities, but the difference between them are superficial characteristics that describe our behavior and our cultural backgrounds, not what we are in our essence. Something like 99.8% of the genetics of every human being on the earth are identical. Identical. Calvin wrote that God could himself indeed have covered the earth with a multitude of men, but it was his will that we should proceed from one fountain in order that our desire of mutual concord might be the greater and that each might more freely embrace the other as his own flesh. What a beautiful thought. God made us descend from one so that we might seek fellowship with one another, not you know, attack one another in enmity. We are suffering so mightily at this moment from ethnic tension and strife. But the only way that the church will successfully battle the disharmony and the alienation that is being fomented by the secularism of the left today is not to embrace their sociological categories, not to welcome critical race theory as a useful analytical tool for biblical interpretation and ethnic harmony. No, the only way we will stand is to insist upon a biblical worldview, upon a biblical anthropology which starts with the unity of the race in Adam as image bearers of Almighty God. We all have the same daddy. And that's Adam. And if you remove that, you undermine the basis for ethnic unity and you actually carry water for the racists who do want us to conceive of ourselves as genuinely distinct races of people. Now again, not everyone who doesn't believe in a historical Adam is racist, but without the historical Adam, they have no consistent basis for not dividing humanity up into separate races and tribes. As I said before, you don't have a worldview that can account for why you don't want to do these horrible things to one another. Certainly the racism of the past was birthed out of atheistic Darwinian principles that negated a historical Adam. Margaret Sanger was a a committed eugenicist and, and evolutionist and racist who wanted to exterminate the population of the Negro peoples, she said, with her, her Negro project, she called it, which is Planned Parenthood today. She was a, a committed Darwinian. She was, uh, they believed in ethnic cleansing, social Darwinism. These other, these other races are inferior, and so they have to be exterminated, so let's trick them into killing themselves. That was Planned Parenthood. Why, why not if Adam isn't a historical person, if we are simply evolved animals? 
Why not? There is no answer why not. Of course not. Of course, let's not do this. Of course, racism is evil and ethnic cleansing and and social Darwinism is evil and wicked and must be put away. But on my worldview, not yours. In fact, yours allows for it and inevitably goes to it. How How do you avoid that with consistency? Repent and believe the gospel. That's how. Third, the historical Adam is the basis for the Bible's doctrine of sin, Romans 5.12. Through one man, sin entered into the world. Romans 5.17, by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. 1 Corinthians 15.21, for since by a man came death. And then in verse 22, in Adam all die. The Bible's explanation for the corruption of this world is sin. And the Bible's explanation for how sin intruded into God's very good creation is the sin of the one man, Adam, who stood as the federal representative of the entire human race so that his sin was counted to be our sin, so that all creation was cursed as a result of his transgression. The biblical description of sin depends entirely on the historicity of Adam. He must be a real individual who rebels against a clear divine directive at a specific moment in real time in a real place. Take away a historical Adam and the Bible's entire doctrine of sin is upended from its foundation, which is just what they want. They want there to be no basis for calling one behavior sin and the other righteous. Beaky and Smalley say, if there was no Adam, then we have suffered the agonies and grief of death from our beginning as a race. And in that case, how does the blame not fall upon God himself? Was the world he created and called very good created with sin, evil, and death in it from the beginning? Did God create evil directly? If not, is he somehow overthrown by the forces of evil outside of his control? You see, without a historical fall of a historical Adam, we not only lose the doctrine of original sin, we lose the doctrine of a good and righteous and sovereign God. And more than that, we lose the gospel. The historicity of Adam is a gospel issue. Why do I say that? Because in those passages that I've just quoted, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Adam is as integral to the logic of salvation as Christ is. That entire paragraph in Romans 5 is Paul's doctrine of Adam and Christ as the two heads of humanity. Romans 5.14 says that Adam is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type of Christ. Verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. First Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Later in First Corinthians 15, 45, Christ is contrasted with Adam and is even called the last Adam. And so it's no accident that the assertion of Adam's historicity in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22 comes right on the heels of the explicit requirement of faith in the historicity of Christ's resurrection in verses 14 and 19. Denial of the bodily bodily resurrection of Christ undermines the gospel. Well, the bodily resurrection of Christ is placed right alongside the historical sin of Adam and his bringing death upon all men. That means that the denial of the historicity of Adam is on the level of denying the bodily resurrection of Christ. It destroys the foundation of Christianity itself, which again is what they want. 
any concession to that program is a move in that direction. A man named Donald McDonald, someone whose parents had a sense of humor, (laughs) in a book called Creation and Fall, put it this way. It is on the assumption that all men are descended from the first Adam and are involved in his guilt that the atonement proceeds and that the offers addressed to sinners of the blessings are uh, procured by the second Adam, the new head of humanity. The denial of this doctrine then involves more than just the rejection of so-called Hebrew myths. It is practically a rejection of Christianity itself. Beaky says it well when he says if there was no real Adam, then Paul's theology collapses. You can't have the gospel without a historical Adam who historically sinned because without Adam you can't have a historical Jesus come as the antitype of Adam and accomplishing redemption. If Adam has not sinned in history, then Christ hasn't atoned in history and you and I, friends, are all damned. A rejection of the historical Adam is a rejection of the gospel. And then beyond that, a rejection of the historical Adam is a rejection of the historicity and accuracy of the rest of Scripture, which makes so much reference to Adam as a genuine historical person. We've already spoken about the many genealogies which connect Adam to Cain and Abel and Seth and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and and David and, and even to Jesus There's no consistent basis upon which we can say that Adam is not historical and the rest of those people are not historic or are historical. Besides the genealogies, though, there are numerous references throughout both Testaments. Job 31, 33, have I covered my transgressions like Adam? Again, is he referring to some mythical character? You know, is is he asking us something akin to was not our fellowship sweet like that of Frodo and Sam? No, people actually do make that very argument. I think it's its own refutation. Ecclesiastes 7.29, God made man upright. Well, without a historical Adam and with, with an evolutionary anthropology in its place where death existed from the genesis of humanity, death being the, the manner, the mechanism by which natural selection takes place, you're gonna survive and you're gonna die, right? Well, then God did not make men upright. God made men evil and they died. They died as a result of their evil. Hosea 6, 7 says, Like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Then into the New Testament, again, Romans 5, 14, uh, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So there you go. Paul mentions Adam right alongside Moses. Should we doubt Moses' historicity? In 1 Corinthians 11, 8, and 9, Paul says, Man does not originate from woman, but woman for man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Where's Paul getting that from? From the creation narrative in Genesis 1 to 3. You think that our, our current cultural milieu has any vested interest in removing the norms of gender roles between men and women that are outlined in 1 Corinthians 11? Any interest at all? Well, what would you have to do? You'd have to undermine the creation out of which those roles are assigned. 2 Corinthians 11, 3, but I'm afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Paul views that as a historical reality, treats the fall as history, treats Eve as a historical person and the serpent as a historical entity. 
And then in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, again, Paul's entire basis for his instruction concerning the distinct roles for men and women in marriage and in the church is, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. If Adam and Eve are not really historical, what is the basis upon which we can enforce this spirit-inspired understanding of our own identity and proper roles? Beaky and Smalley make an insightful comment on this. They say, if we rip the Genesis account out of the flow of history and regard it as myth, it loses its authority to reveal God's will for mankind. However, if we view Adam as the first man God created, then we are able to apply the Old Testament in the same way that Jesus and Paul did to illuminate what it means to be male and female. In this age, when the church is so ravaged by moral relativism, militant feminism, and homosexual activism, we are blessed to have a solid basis for our sexual ethics in God's creation ordinances. And Dr. Barrick says, look, if a latter text, like all the texts we've just gone through, grounds its faith in earlier events and realities that did not actually take place, then the grounds of faith are removed. And so we need the doctrine of a historical Adam. We need the doctrine of a six-day creation. You have to understand that this is who you are, Grace Church. You are not, on the one hand, evolved animals, a slave to your own base passions and impulses of no more dignity than to be discarded when society determines that you are no longer useful, convenient, or wanted. On the other hand, neither are you little mini-gods, unaccountable to anyone but yourselves, fabricating your own truth. Well, that's my truth, right? Or speaking your own identity into existence out of nothing. I identify as a furry. You know what those are? Those are people who think that they're pets, that they're dogs and cats, and get facial surgeries to reflect the facial features of a dog or a cat. No, you are a creature, and so you are accountable to God, your creator. You must order your life as he says you must, or you must suffer the consequences of cosmic justice. But you are not just a creature. You are a creature made in his image. And so you are the unique objects of his favor and blessing possessed of an unspeakable dignity that sets you apart from the rest of creation. And that's where we're going next week with the implications of image bearers, being image bearers of Almighty God. But understand what's at stake. There is an entire army of people, an entire army of catechizers loose throughout the culture, the anchors of news stations, the hosts of daytime talk shows, stars of TV shows that you watch or your children watch or that your grandchildren watch as religiously as you watch MacArthur sermons, probably more religiously. And, and, and the culture is a great catechizer. They are excellent at discipleship. And you show up here for a couple of hours on Sunday and you f feel all nice because Jesus died for your sins and my sins are forgiven and I don't have to feel guilty. And then I go back into the world to drink at the cesspool of cultural degradation and antichrist. You can't do it. There, you have to fight that battle here. And I'm saying that battle starts not, not at abortion should be celebrated at every stage of pregnancy. Not 
we ought to, def- to fi- define ourselves and understand ourselves according to our, our own ethnicity, make that the first thing about us, and then Christians second, which some professing Christians are calling people to do. Not the, 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 you know, this whole thing where we become furries and everything like that. You're probably not going to be convinced on those issues. Transgender, you can speak your own reality. But where they're coming is the root, the foundation upon which all of that is based. All of those anthropological issues are downstream from man being creatures created by God by the breath of his mouth instantaneously over the course of six days. You allow a concession there and it's the breach in the dam that you will only avoid that monsoon, that flood, if you are happily inconsistent. And praise God, there are many happily inconsistent people. But it's, but it's not because of your worldview that you will stem off that tide. It's only in spite of it. You have to submit to God's mind at the beginning or you won't have anything left. Let's pray. Father, I pray for an unusual spirit of discernment in these precious people and the people of Grace Church. I pray that you would allow them to see what is happening in front of their eyes, though what is, what is not being able to be seen apart from spiritual understanding. We, we think of Elisha and his servant who sees the, the army and, and does not see the, the, the host of heaven encamped about them ready. When, and when Elisha says more, there are more that are with us than are with them, the, the servant can't understand it because he's, he's seeing with his natural eyes. Well, right now, there are many who are against us that we don't see. And we think things neutral and normal and, you know, a, a time where we think we're in peacetime. God, make us understand that we are in wartime. Make us understand that we are the generation to proclaim the truth in the face of this error, in the face of this wickedness. No, not to transform the culture, not to take, over, take back the country. We recognize that we are the church and not the state, but to, but to prophetically declare to the state that the church will stand where it has always stood upon the word of God and to help our people withstand the tides of this virulent antichrist culture. We ask for unusual commitment to discerning these things and to standing upon them fearlessly. Make us men to stand. Make us women to stand. Make us men to lead families. Make us women to, to raise children as disciples of Christ who will walk into this corrupt culture and proclaim truth and proclaim the law of God's judgment upon wickedness and to proclaim the sweetness of the gospel that rescues us all from it. Open eyes, we pray. Use the, this past hour and a half in the service of that to the honor of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.